Hello, and welcome to On The Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Mark Foster. Mark is a British swimmer who was born in Billericay, Essex in 1970. By the age of 15, he was the fastest swimmer in the country, which led to a long career in the pool. Mark set eight world records and won six world titles, 11 European Championship gold medals, two Commonwealth golds, and competed in five Olympic Games, even carrying the GB flag at the opening ceremony in Beijing. Since retiring in 2008, Mark's competed on Strictly Come Dancing, and has been a TV regular for BBC Sports Swimming coverage. I'll be speaking to Mark today via video call. Mark Foster, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. How are you? I'm really, really good, thank you. I'd like to begin, Mark, by asking if you could tell us about a significant bereavement that you've experienced in your life. Um... I'll give you a couple, I suppose. The first one would be my dad. Um, was about three years ago now. Um, and I did have a good relationship my, with my dad, but I didn't see an awful lot of him. Um, and that, was, when you say significant, that's the closest person to me and clearly in my family that's, that's died. Um, and then I would say, this won't sound stupid to most people, but uh, I had a dog called George for 12 years. He was a bulldog. And he was like my, um, it was kind of like my baby, so to speak. And uh, really devastated when he went. I think it's pretty important to mention that as well and just acknowledge that, you know, the kind of grief people can experience after the death of a, an animal can have a huge impact um, and as you say you know it was like your baby um, and 12 years is a really long time isn't it can I ask about your dad's death mark was he ill for a long time or was it something that happened quite quickly no it was it, it, it was still ill for a couple of years with a um a blood disorder and I can't remember the name of what it's called, but he got, he got a blood disorder uh, and it started coming out in his skin. Um, and I, my mum and dad split when I was 11 years of age. Uh, my dad remarried when I was probably about 15. Uh, it was mum's decision they split up in the first place, but he then remarried and it was uh, an old friend of the family's. Um, so we knew her uh, and everything was cool um, but it was kind of like she had her three kids and there was us three on my side and those three kids became dad's new family so to speak uh, not because of him but because of the wife um, so we kind of got a little bit pulled apart in that sense but I suppose for me 
I found my focus got taken up by swimming first and foremost. So I don't remember the split up very much looking back at the, at the divorce, going back, oh, it's obviously now, what, 35 years ago. Um, Cause I just focused on swimming and that was a positive thing for me. Um, but me and my dad were, there was a lot of love for one another. I just didn't see enough of him. Now I partly blame myself for that, but then getting towards being an adult, well, I am very much an adult now. I kind of just wish that he'd had a little bit more, um, how do I say, that could stand up to her a little bit more and say, look, you know, my kids are important. I need to see a bit more of them. I, I wish, but anyway, that's hindsight. Um, and he was for the last couple of years, got this uh, blood infection. And again, because we weren't that close, we weren't allowed to be that close. It sort of happened kind of away from us. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a shock, but it was a bit of a shock. Clearly. How did you find out? Um, from my step brother, um, rang my sisters and he basically gone around the house because he couldn't get hold of his mum or my dad and he'd been around the house and climbed up to a window and seen my my stepmother on the floor she couldn't move um obviously she was just in complete shock uh and my dad was in the house and he died um so my my stepbrother rang my sisters who rang me and then we went straight down there and went, went to the house and um yeah the rest is history though. so was your dad still there when you got to the house yeah yeah he was he was on the floor at the top of the stairs so basically because of uh the blood infection he had which had been going on for a couple of years um he basically had a massive heart attack because his body couldn't cope with it anymore. Um, so it's slight frustrations around how it happened in terms of wanting to get a doctor involved for a number of years, but was always kept away. But would things have been different? I don't know. I suppose it's the, the not knowing, could you have made a difference, which is the hard bit. But then comes the, you just have to accept and move on. Do you think that kind of distance for want of a better word between you and your dad over the years certainly when he went to live with another family um do you think that impacted on your experience of bereavement when your dad died yeah yeah i do um i i know i'm really close to my mum um for a couple of reasons one obviously dad left not left, left, but, you know, obviously ended up with another family. Uh, and my mum, I mean, I'm talking from about the age of, you know, when I started swimming at the age of nine, she, you know, she'd get me up in the morning, take me to the pool, take me to competitions. She basically drove me uh, literally in the car, but she was the, the sort of driving force behind me as a child uh, and as a young athlete. So I became really close to my mum and it's sort of everything was done with my mum and my sisters, my mum and my sisters. So I'm, like I say, I'm not, I, I wasn't, I did, I did not miss my dad, but it was one of those things that you start getting to the point of, well, how do you miss something when you never really had it, in a sense? Um, do I think things would have been different if he had been around? Yeah, 100%. Um, but, uh, and I think that's probably part of the reason I mentioned earlier that I became very good at 
swimming was, whatever pain was going on. I didn't know this at the time, but subconsciously, obviously, did it. I threw myself into something that was it gave me something to focus on. Uh, and I found rewarding. It gave me uh, the feedback. It gave me a good feedback. And was it a way of? I think sometimes I I, I look back and think I wanted to do well, uh, so that he would take notice. Probably, possibly, there's probably an element of that. But I never know because I never had the conversations with him. I think that swimming giving you feedback's interesting. Can you say a bit more about that? Um, I felt at home in the water, first of all. Uh, and I suppose one of those things that you can bury your head in the water, you're burying, burying, burying your head. Uh, it was more than that. I think from a, and I think people get into whatever they get into because they find it rewarding, first of all. But for me, it was more about company. Uh, I, I surrounded myself with like-minded people. Uh, and all my mates were swimmers because I immersed myself in that world, so to speak. Um, so I kind of found a family outside of family. Uh, and then uh, the rewarding part comes from doing something and training towards something and getting a, getting a result. Now, that result might not have been the result that I always wanted. At an early age, winning came very, very easy because I was very talented and I worked very, very hard. Um, winning got harder as I got older when the rest of the world came to play. But I think that working towards something, spending time doing something and then standing on top of the podium or, or doing the best time, it might not necessarily be winning something. But the feedback that I got, it wasn't a question of so I needed then someone to put my arm around me and say, oh, look, you've done really well. Because I looked up at the scoreboard and I could see. I, you know, I, I do logic very well. I do numbers very, very well. So touching the wall, seeing the best time or seeing a result, seeing a place gave me the feedback that I needed to go, wow, that was good, bad, indifferent. So I didn't need feedback from, a, from, from an adult, I suppose, parent. I think as you're describing as well, you know, when, when parents um, separate and divorce, especially when you're young, you know, it has an impact on the whole family, doesn't it? And there's, there's a whole host of losses associated with that as well. Yeah. Um, and I like your use of the word immersion, how you immersed yourself um, in swimming, um, because actually it sounds like that was incredibly helpful at what was not an easy time. I think it enabled me to be, it might sound stupid, but you'll get it. It enabled me to be in the moment, like training hard or uh, racing. And I think I was very good at what I did because I was very good at being in the moment. Uh, and I'm not the best, although I have to, obviously, because we all do it. We, we all talk to ourselves, we all think. Um, but I'm not very, very good in my, I'm good at using my body, not using my mind. Of course, I use my mind because that goes hand in hand. But I was very, I'm a very, I'm a doer. I'm not a sitter and a thinker. I'm very much a doer. Whereas I find now, uh, I retired, what, 13 years ago, uh, after the 2008 Olympics, uh, I now play loads of golf. Because that, to me, becomes a thing that I can practice towards being better at something. But the biggest, so that's my goal at getting better. But the, the bigger bit comes a little bit like from being a swimmer in a team that I've now got, a lot of my mates that I used to swim with, we play golf together. So it's kind of like swimming finished, but now we now we all walk around a field hitting balls around. It's kind of bizarre, but but we're still connected. Mm -hmm. That sort of connection that we had in the water, we've, we've carried on and now we're uh, 
we're doing it on, on, on golf courses. On dry land. Yeah, but like that, I do find that very comforting that, that I've got... Um, uh, those friends are still my friends, obviously. But, um, yeah, it's kind of... It's quite... Well, listen, you could go one or two ways. You can. I know a lot of people that go, God, you spend a lot of years doing sport. You must hate it now. I love movement. I still go to the gym three or four times a week. I don't beat myself up like I used to. And I, I mean that. I don't mean in the mental sense or the physical sense but I do mean it in terms of as an athlete what you do every day is push yourself to extremes so you, you, you're literally physically trying to hurt your body sounds wrong but you, you're pushing your body to the next level whereas now when I go in the gym or I'm doing whatever I'm doing I do everything at 75% because I realise I'm 51 years of age and at, and at some point something might fall off. I was going to ask one question, but then also just before I do, I wanted to ask um, what retirement was like. Was it a difficult experience? Um, it was kind of bizarre in, in a sense that I suppose, like I said earlier, not being really much of a thinker, I, I didn't really plan out. I didn't plan out what was next. So I went to my fifth Olympic Games, which was Beijing in 2008. I got to carry the flag around at the opening ceremony, which was amazing. Uh, and I was very fortunate that the BBC asked me to do Strictly Come Dancing. So I sort of finished the Olympic Games. I came back. I started doing Strictly Come Dancing, which the reason why I did the show was for a couple of reasons. One, friends of mine like uh, Roger Black, Denise Lewis, Colin Jackson, they'd done the show. And they said, you know, if you get the opportunity to do it because it's, it's taking yourself out of your comfort zone. But more than that, it's Saturday night TV. So... In the swimming world, I was very well known. In the sports world, I was well known. And then, so that what I say out in the public world, people didn't have the foggiest who I was because swimming's not like football. It's not on TV every day. And um, so I thought I'll do the show and I did it and I loved it and I threw myself into it. And on the back of that show, I got asked to do a few talks, motivational talks, keynotes, talks, you know, can be dealing with setbacks, motivation. Um, there's lots of different things that, mold into speaking and, and I remember at first thinking what will I talk about I'm like I'm, my life to me at the time was was not boring but it's what I did and I think a lot of people say the same to them it's what you do every day what's, what's interesting about that uh, and then I went along and did a few talks in banks government sector public companies and uh, and people loved what I talked about which was just really about stories from the sports world put into real life the way that we view things and the way that we react to things, which is what happens in everyday life, in the workplace and at, and at home with, uh, with your loved ones. So, uh, so when you say, was it difficult? I didn't really get a chance to think. I, I did leading up to it, but obviously I didn't plan too much, which was swimming finished, Strictly came along. No, I'm not a professional dancer, but it opened up another world to me, which was the world of celebrities, a wrong thing to call it, because I don't I just see myself as someone that did well in the swimming pool. But other opportunities turned. It was like another door opened and I stepped through it because I'm fascinated with taking myself out of my comfort zone and trying something different. Uh, and I'll try anything because you don't know whether you like something unless you try it. So give it a go and see whether A, you like it, and secondly, you're good at it. And it sounds very much like just kind of ending one chapter and starting a new one, you know. So um, that transition was potentially made easier by you sort of immersing yourself in something else quite quickly. Yeah. But I think it's the same for other people in general. If you, if, you, if you decide to do something, as long as you, my, my, I've never been afraid of failure. 
Mm. And I think of the word fail, um, and you think of the words fail, F-A-I-L, from action I learned. And, and I think what sport taught me very much so was you do an action, you get a result. It might not be the result you want, but learn, go again, go again, go again, go again. And what sport taught me was, well, try something. If you don't like it, try again, try something different. I don't get stuck in fear of not being good at something because I find something I'm good at and just keep having a go. What was it like carrying the flag at the Olympics? It was, uh, it was the most amazing experience in terms of, uh, it was an honour. The fact that the team had nominated me to be flag bearer and, if you, and Jason, if you, you, put it, you won't know how this works, but w- within the team, you've got Team GB, the Great Britain team. And within the team, you've got different... So you've got swimming, you've got tennis, you've got rowing, you've got athletics, you've got all the teams within the team. So everybody nominated someone to be their, the flag bearer, so to speak. Uh, and I was nominated for swimming. Tom Daly was diving. Who else was there? Jamie Murray was tennis. There were a few people on the list. And then it goes back to the athlete. We go back to the athletes and they get the shortest of names and then they vote on who's going to be flag bearer. And... Uh, the night before the opening ceremony at the Chinese ambassador's residence, Princess Anne, who's head of the Olympic movement, was there and she was she patron. So she comes up and she was she was going to say who's going to be flag bearer. And I just remember standing there. I was 38, fifth Olympics. This is going to be my last Olympics. And I got so nervous. I really wanted to carry the flag because I thought it was a recognition that uh, I'd done five Olympic Games. I've been successful in my sport for I've represented Britain for 23 years at senior level and it was kind of like the icing on the cake which was to lead Team GB out of the opening ceremony it was, and that's what I said, it was an honour in front of 80,000 screaming people and I literally walked around pinching my finger as I hold the flag going, this, this will never happen again, just enjoy this moment. How wonderful. I think that recognition of your career like you mentioned but also your own pride in what you'd achieved for yourself Mark and also you use the word honour yeah um and and yeah it's fantastic thank you this September Swimathon is back and better than ever swim at any time on any day between Friday the 3rd of September and Sunday the 19th of September at any venue of your choosing Swimathon is designed to suit all levels of fitness. From 400 metres to 30.9 kilometres, there's a challenge to suit you. Visit swimathon.org to find out more. The reason we do this podcast is to encourage people to have conversations about death and dying. And what we do know from our listeners is that, um, you know, they might be experiencing a bereavement themselves or they might be currently caring for somebody who's dying from a terminal illness and we know that they find listening to other people's experiences um, helpful and and sometimes comforting so just to kind of go back to talking about death and dying when you were younger when you were growing up do you remember death being quite an open thing that was talked about I mean what messages about death did you get when you were younger uh, when I was young, not at all. I don't remember it ever being discussed, as in within our family. Um, uh, um, I, it, there was no one that had died within the family when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 15. So I, so I didn't have any uh, early connection to death or had conversations about death because I did not, no one near me had died. 
Um, I mentioned George, my dog. That was probably when I, I'm trying to think. I was about 30, I think. Grandparents were still alive. Um, grandparents didn't go till I was probably about 35, I think. Um, but there was something that happened when I was late 20s, I think it was. I was down in Bath and I was training with, um, I was training at the, in the pool, obviously, but Colin Jackson was training down there. And a, a training partner of his, a guy called Ross Bailey, he was the next aspiring up and coming hurdler. And he was going to be the next Colin Jackson. Uh, and he was a few years younger than me. Uh, I remember being with him. We trained in the morning, we did gym and we were going to go and play golf in the afternoon. And I remember going to the, um, it was a sandwich shop, a delicatessen around the corner from me. So we were going to get a bite to eat and then go and play golf because we weren't teeing up until the afternoon. And I remember getting to this delicatessen and uh, I knew the guy and he, and, and he had no sandwiches. And I remember saying, I said, well, what, what have you got? What can you do? And he said, uh, coronation chicken was the first thing he mentioned. I like coronation chicken. So I said, I'll have one of them. And then Ross was with me and I said, what do you want? And, uh, and he said, oh, that sounds nice. I'll have one of them as well. Uh, and we went back to the flat and we started eating the sandwich and I'm woofing my sandwich down. And he, as soon as he bit it, he went, that's got nuts in that. Now, I didn't know Ross had a nut allergy, first of all. And I, clearly, I've never been with him when he had a reaction. And, uh, and I just remember he, he went upstairs, he spat it out, he tried to make himself be sick, he came down, he took his Ventolin. Um, uh, the reason why I'm saying this is because the first person that was very close to me that died. Um, he, for about 15 minutes, was coughing and spluttering. And I remember being on the phone to Colin Jackson. I mean, he'd been with Ross before when Ross had had an episode. And Ross was laughing and joking, and there was a bit of banter going on. And, uh, and I just remember I kept going to him, are you all right? You're going a bit red. And he kept going, no, I'm fine, because Ross didn't want to put me out. He didn't want to say anything. And also, I, because I, I, he'd had a few of these reactions in the past, he, he knew that they would pass. And after about, probably, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour, again, he'd been sick, he came down. And I went, look, you're going red. Are you sure you don't want me to take you to the doctor's? And he looked at me and he went, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Because I think he realised at that point it had gone past where it normally goes. Um, and I just remember getting in the car, he's in the passenger seat, driving up to the hospital, and he started gasping for breath. And I, and then I, I, I was fixating on obviously getting to the doctors, which is a university hospital up at Bath University, which is only about five minutes away. But uh, the long and the short of it is, we got, to the, we got up to the, the university, a nurse put uh, an EpiPen in his arm and gave him a big dose, but uh, it had gone past, it was past coming back. And uh, they put me in a coma for three days and, and, he, and he died. And, uh, and it was, um, yeah, it was shocking that not only was it a, a very close friend of mine that, that died and I sort of say on my watch, but I didn't know anything about the allergy. Um, but also someone that was so young and, Scottish record holder. I mean, he was the next up and coming athlete, somebody that was so fit and strong, but actually something so small, a nut that could that could bring him down. And that, that hit me hard for, for, for quite a while. I bet it did. It's kind of harder to get your head around, I think, as well, as you describe, you know, something that's just come from a nut, but actually resulted in his death and in a death so sudden and sounds traumatic as well, Mark. Hmm. And someone that's there one minute and gone the next. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was, I'm not saying my dad, I mean, my dad hit me an awful lot, but my dad was 77 years of age. It was sort of, he was, he was older. And this was sort of a 21 year old that was 
could run through walls one minute and then gone. I'd like to talk about bereavement and grief and, and your experience of grief. What's what helped you when you've been grieving? Um, people. My ex-partner with his dog, but we're still good friends. But I suppose you've got something in common with someone else. You've shared that experience with, with that person. You both went through the same thing. You might have felt it slightly differently emotionally, but you both felt something. And you've both feeling the loss of that pet, that person. Um, with my father would be my sisters. Uh, again, we've got something in common. Uh, and we still do a few bits and pieces every year. Like once a year we do something. We go on a walk together around some fields near, near where we used to go as kids. Not the same place, but nearby. But we spend the day chatting about him. Um, but I mean, that's ultimately the thing that binds us and connects us. So uh, I found I find that very helpful in terms of um, being able to discuss it with other people that understand what you're going through. Uh, that's not, but again, that's not saying that it had to be my ex-partner or my sisters. It can be uh, another person. I think sometimes that uh, would be bereavement, or and that's it. You know, like I split up with a with a with a partner a year and a half ago, and it and it and it, and it felt like a bereavement because all of a sudden they're still here, but actually they're not here anymore. They're somewhere else, um, and that took me a long time to come to terms with that, but but having conversations with other people that have been through and, and remembering that other people have been through not the same experience as you because our experiences are all our own and we feel them in different ways, but realising that no, other people have lost somebody or experienced some loss, that actually by having that discussion with that person, you might feel a bit vulnerable for doing it at first, but actually you're, you, you realise that a lot of other people have been through the same thing. So there's something about sharing the grief, talking to people, getting comfort from others, storytelling, remembering. Um, what about sort of funerals or rituals? Did you did you do anything um, when was it George your dog? George, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah when when George died, was was there any sort of rituals after his death? February the fifth is the day he died. Uh, Buried him in the garden under a tree where he always used to sleep. And actually the other dog, there was two of them. There was another one called M. And she went about three, she was younger, but she went about three years later. They basically got put side by side under the tree in the old house uh, with a stone, ball, two stone bulldogs that are on top. They're old antique bulldog thing. Uh, with dog tags around their neck that said their date of birth and their, their date of death. Of them. They're at the old house, so to be fair, can't get to the old house anymore but um no I'm, I'm feb 5th always sort of say something raise a glass and yeah remembering i think the thing is you never you never forget so i think it's acknowledging something that's that's happened as you say there sharing sharing stories i mean i can't forget the story there's so many and a lot of my mates that i now play golf with used to know george back in the day and the inj <laughs> i tell them they're all obsessed with me because Three of the guys that I play golf with, my dog was called George, and now three of them have got boys called George. So, so George lives on in them, right? Yeah, yeah, how nice. Well, subconsciously, that name was planted in their brains for a reason, I'm sure of it. So there we are. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a nice memory 
to, to, to that. And it's also remembering all those, you know, the, the good things that happened and the funny things that happened and the, you know, the indifferent things that happened. Because we can all go to a, a place of negativity if we choose to. I don't mean negativity, not being negative, but think of the worst case scenario as opposed to going to the best case scenario and think, all right, well, you know, I, I, I've just got fond memories. I do see the world in, the, in a weird way because I'm I'm strictly optimistic about most most stuff. To be fair, one of the things, like I mentioned before, one of the one of the things we encourage in our work as a charity is to to get people to talk about death and dying, so actually they can plan for the future and maybe even put some practical things around that, like writing a will or planning a funeral or making some decisions about where they might want to be cared for should they have a terminal illness and, and be dying. Um, do you ever think about your own death? Um, no, I don't. I'm not saying I'm at moments when I've been swimming in the sea and <laughs> being a bit far out. Uh, but no, I, I, it's not a question of not thinking about it because I have discussions with friends sometimes around the subject. Um, but I haven't planned, and I, this, this also might be naive and stupid, but I haven't planned the funeral or what I want done, or I don't know, I, I, in a stupid way I suppose in a childish way I'm 51 and I kind of think I've got another 30 years 40 years 50 years I don't know um but discuss things with my mum uh, mum's 79 now but not to the nth degree that everything's put in place because I think ultimately uh, it's more to do with for us for me and my sisters is more to do with if anything happened we deal with it when it when it comes up it's more to do with her peace of mind of going, okay, she wants to be in control of what's going to, what will be if anything happens to her. Because we'll kind of go, we'll, we'll do what's ever needed to do. We're all very close and we're a close family. Um, so, uh, no, going back to your question, have I thought about it too much or have I planned? No, I haven't. I think also, you know, people can find them quite difficult conversations to have, you know, and one way into it might be, you know, finding out whether somebody wants to be cremated or buried when they die, you know, if, if that's, if that's important to them and then getting those things written down, you know, even in our will, when you write the will, you can, um, you can add some of that kind of basic, you know, information with regards to your funeral wishes. Also, some people don't want to talk about it. I mean, some people we've met on the podcast have just said, it's, I'll be dead. So others can make those decisions. No, I think it's important. If, if you want things done a certain way, then obviously you, you map them out and plan them out. If you're somebody that, that is really not fussed, then I suppose there's nothing wrong with not being really fussed. I don't mean that in a, it's a, if you, anything can happen to any of us anytime tomorrow, right? Who knows from, from walking outside to getting a bus to, I mean, I play loads of golf. I mean, anything can happen on the golf course, but um, I suppose it's peace of mind, isn't it? That if you got, kind of go, well, this is the way that I'd like to see things happen. Not that need to be done to nth degree, but I've got a kind of uh, an idea of how I'd like to, what I'd like to happen to me. Then that's that, that's good. Put it down on a bit of paper, put it in the will, or share it with somebody that's, that's that's close to you. And as you say, though, on the flip side, you've got some people that are either uncomfortable with the subject and they don't want to go there, or 
which is more my <laughs> more where I am, which is I don't mind. That sounds probably a bit stupid, but um, I don't mind. I think with my sisters and my mum, they've kind of, <laughs> I say got my best interests at heart, as you said there, if someone's gone, they're gone. But I think for the people that you are leaving behind, at least they've got some roadmap to what you want, rather than them going, oh, what, 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 what might they have wanted to do then? Or, uh, I don't know, that's, that's, I think they'd have wanted this, as opposed to, no, actually, I seriously they want a cremation. Um, this is the music they want playing. And they're kind of at least, you're actually making it simple for them, as opposed to, oh, I kind of think they might have liked this, or they used to listen to this song an awful lot, or, I don't know, they used to like these flowers, or whatever it might be. Well, that's when lots of tensions can arise as Absolutely. well. You know, that's when kind of conflict, when people have got different, because of course, you and your family, certainly with your sisters and your mum, from what you're saying, are incredibly close. But you'll still have kind of individual relationships with each one of them. And, you know, some might know some more things about you than others or remember other things and you know so so w w we know sort of in our work that um you know conflict can arise afterwards because people will say well well actually that's not what i think he would have wanted or um you know and and not just around funeral issues but around financial matters and houses and all, all that stuff so so i think it can be practical and helpful in that way as well 100 100%. So at least then, all right, and it might take, I don't know how long these things take, a couple of hours for you personally to say, this is what I'd like, uh, which, as you say there, would actually in the long term stop confusion, arguments. I mean, who knows? I mean, I mean we, we, all, we, we all know things can go crazy. And actually things should be at a time when actually the loss of someone should be quiet. But it's, it's clearly it's sad. Um, but you, you'd like to think that things can be done in a, well, they're gone in a calm way. And you're grieving as well, so you've got enough to kind of deal with on an emotional level, you know. So, so I think, yeah, cal calmly um, is, is, I think it can be beneficial. And we can all go there in a, in a, in a you know, I, you know I, I like the rest of us can, can be a, I've got a friend that does a lot of, um, he's, he's a bit of a psychologist, but a spiritual psychologist in America. And uh, he always, talks about um which is very true anger comes from that sort of child within which is that's the one that gets angry that's the one that wants to fight and i think i mean in life in general you try and you try like to think that you sort things out as an adult not as a child because we can all shout and throw our toys out the pram and get upset about certain things and actually that's just hurt coming out but uh, a, a better way of dealing with everything is I always think you're one conversation away from sorting things out. That might be that person coming to conversation, sorting out their will. There you go. Or it might be some of people have got conflict within the family, or you're just one conversation away from putting it right. You know, and I know whether it be around deaths, you know, there's, there, there is a lot of divide sometimes, and it actually separates people rather than actually it should be a time when it brings people together. Just before we finished today, Mark. Um, can I ask what's your experience been like today on the Marie Curie couch? You made me think about things I haven't thought about for a while. I've done in a good way. Uh, and I think sometimes to, and I mentioned, which is about having conversation, uh, having a conversation with you today about, I haven't spoke about Ross for a few years. Um, 
I'm patron of the Anaphylactis campaign, which is about trying to put EpiPens in schools, businesses, airplanes, whatever it might be, so that anaphylactic shock happens to anybody, the EpiPens are there. So I do, do stuff with them. Um, but I haven't spoken about him for a while. I'm, I was thinking about my dad quite a lot, and the, the, my dad's grave's not far away from here, so I pop up there from time to time. But by talking to you and having a conversation with you has made me, it's made me think about my will, to be fair, because like, that's one of those things I haven't dealt with. And I need to deal with it. As I've just been saying, people put their uh, lives in order so that other people don't have to squabble over it. And there's me not even, I'm not even practicing what I'm preaching. Well, it sounds like you're thinking about it now. But it's on my list. Absolutely. Well, listen, Mark Foster, thank you for sharing your stories, joining me on the Marie Curie couch today. And it's been great to meet you. Thanks for having me, Jason. Cheers. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. And the music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, Goodbye.